welcome to Living with Steam. This unique podcast features the authentic sounds of trains and railroad operations around Buffalo and Western New York. The recordings you're about to hear were captured in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. I'm Aaron Heverin. In the early 1950s, John Prophet knew that the steam engine was being eliminated at an alarming rate. With the prospects for catching a train pulled by a steam engine in Buffalo slowly diminishing, John began to venture outside of Western New York to try to capture whatever steam remained on other railroads, particularly those in areas of the eastern United States. We'll listen to some of those recordings in this and the next few episodes of Living With Steam. We just heard a recording John Prophet made in Fort Edward, New York, on August 24, 1951. It was the first recording he made while on a trip to the eastern areas of New York State to catch some trains on the Delaware and Hudson while they were still running steam on their main lines. The train we heard was a freight heading north, being pulled by K62 engine 300, a 484. And we'll hear more of John's recordings from this trip later in the episode. John Prophet made his first recordings of trains in the Buffalo, New York area in 1948, the same year he purchased his Webster Chicago wire recorder. Since John was a clerk for the New York Central Railroad and worked at Central Terminal, he had access to dozens of locations where the activity of the Central was pretty much nonstop. It took me a while to realize this because of the way John's notes were written down, but the majority of the recordings he made were that of the New York Central, 
and his absolute favorite, the Pennsylvania. But John started making his recordings in post-war America, and although it wasn't blatantly obvious at first, many railroads across the country were beginning to drop the fires on their steam engines, retire, and scrap them. The longtime symbol of every railroad in the country was being eliminated in favor of the new diesel engine. But why was this happening? By the late 1940s, a steady decline in train travel was beginning to take place. It may not have been noticeable at first because the traveling public simply did what they always did, purchased a ticket, arrived at the station, and got on board their train when it pulled up. Not too many cared what was at the head end of the train, unless, of course, you were a dedicated rail fan like John. But truth be told, the automobile was quickly taking over as the leisurely way of getting around, and airplanes were becoming the preferred way to travel over large distances because it seemed that everyone in America was suddenly in a hurry. But why? I need to digress for a bit to explain my thoughts on the matter. Many of us may never know what it was like to live through several catastrophic events that would change the way people looked at their lives and their lives in the future, if they were able to think about attempting to see that far ahead. The first four decades of the 20th century were hard for millions of people all over America. There was no future, only tough times. In the 1930s, a major depression crippled America's economy. Buying anything and everything on credit during the 20s seemed like a great idea. Buy now, pay later. But the companies that handed out this credit suddenly wanted their money back when the stock market crashed in 1929. Only, there was no money. During the 1920s, people got rich on paper only. All over the country, anyone who invested in the stock market assumed that when the money started rolling in from their wise investments, more than enough cash would be available to make payments on everything that was purchased on margin or on credit, including the homes these people lived in. There would still be lots of money left over to play with. Well, that was the idea anyway. Money that was on hand, or stored inside the mattress, quickly vanished either to creditors or to the grocer to feed your family. Millions were out of work. People lost their homes and their businesses. Personal belongings were sold for pennies just to have money to buy food or pay rent. It was a dark time in America, doing without, having nothing, starving, walking the street looking for work or a handout. For millions of unfortunate souls, this was what became of their lives. Now, if you lived in the Midwest and depended on farming for your income, if the Depression didn't wipe you out, the dust storms that plagued states like Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and New Mexico certainly did. The agrarian society that depended on the land to earn a living was ruined. No crops, no money. Farms were failing by the hundreds. So now you had millions of people starving, unemployed, wandering, looking for work, willing to do anything just for a few pennies to feed their families. And many of us will never know what it was like to live through a world war, where loved ones were lost. Rationing made living not much better than it was during the Depression, and everyone in the country 
made it a point to chip in to help the war effort. And that's my point. When the war began, everyone in the country suddenly put the depression out of their minds. It's a heck of a way to bring the economy back to life, a devastating war. But that's pretty much what happened in America. Suddenly, everyone had a sense of purpose. But it was a horrible way to put your life on the rebound. The United States may never again see the tremendous industrial growth brought on by the war. But for all the successful regrowth that was taking place, for the American people, it was still a life of sacrifice, doing without, saving, for the duration of the war. People lived for the day, just as they did during the Depression, because who knew when the end would come and prosperity might return? The motivational slogans that were plastered all over the propaganda posters of the early 1940s said it all. You couldn't escape them. Do with less, so they'll have enough. Victory begins at home. Like digging a foxhole, it's for your own protection. Make conservation a habit. Loose talk can cost lives. Broadcast receivers can help the enemy sink you. Don't use them. And perhaps the most relevant to our interests. When you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. Join a car-sharing club today. Or how about this one? Millions of troops are on the move. Is your trip necessary? Men and women by the thousands worked in factories to build anything and everything needed for the war effort. Men went to fight in Europe or the Pacific, many just barely out of their teens. They had their lives put on hold or tragically cut short. Ambitious dreams and plans for the future that might have been made in the 1930s by naive young men and women, all of that was put on hold by the war. So is it at all surprising that when the war ended in 1945 and the 40s gave way to the 50s, the men and women who suffered and endured, or lost and struggled to rebuild, were going to make up for lost time. It was inevitable that when it came to having freedom, freedom to go wherever you wanted, do anything you wanted to do, buy anything you wanted to buy, well, the gloves came off and the fight to enjoy oneself began. America had endured years of brutal hardship. Clever patriotic propaganda posters aside, the war was over and it was time to live it up. Nothing else brought about the freedom that millions of people desired than the automobile. They were purchased in quantities never seen before. New roads and superhighways were being constructed all over the country to drive those cars on. Tourism became a very profitable business. Even the shack you owned in some godforsaken location would draw people to it as long as you had a gimmick to lure tourists in. And there were gimmicks by the thousands. Get your kicks on Route 66, right? During the war, the boys who went over to Europe were seeing parts of the world they never knew existed. Or they heard about one or two of these exotic places but had a snowball's chance in hell of seeing it for themselves. Before the war, long-distance travel for a lot of these boys meant going with your family to a cousin's house in the next county. But after they'd been to Paris, North Africa, an island in the Pacific, 
many discovered just how vast the world really was. What was to stop them from getting in their car and driving across the country just for the sheer enjoyment of doing so? Or hopping in a car just to run downtown to the hardware store for supplies needed for the new home? Take the bus? Are you kidding? Take the train to the cousin's house? Why? I own a car now. The trolley? To go grocery shopping? Why? I can drive my car and be back in 20 minutes. For the railroad industry, this was a sign of things to come. The population shifted in the way it wanted to travel, by automobile and not by train in post-war America. Even manufacturing industries started shipping by truck rather than by train. By the end of the war, the prosperity brought on by the war effort was winding down. Railroads started seeing passenger service drying up along with the tremendous freight shipping that had taken place earlier. Money was flying out of the wallets of many railroads across the country, and they began to look for ways, anything, to cut costs and stay afloat. By the mid-1940s, the short answer for many struggling railroads was the diesel engine. It was billed as less costly to operate, just as efficient as the steam engine, if not more so, needed less maintenance and attention than the steam engine, and required a quarter of the crew. Consequently, the arrival of the diesel engine put a lot of railroad men out of work or moved to other positions. Never mind the fact that many railroads all over the country were a study in redundancy. Lines running parallel to each other. The same destinations provided by competing companies. Many railroads dieselized very early. Almost as soon as manufacturers like General Electric, Alco, Baldwin, and Fairbanks Morse introduced them. The Erie was one railroad that started floundering prior to World War II. In fact, the Erie filed for bankruptcy in 1938. They did, however, see a bit of prosperity return during the war. But shortly after the war ended, the Erie found itself in trouble again. The Erie was one of the first railroads to see the benefits in dropping maintenance-intensive steam engines in favor of the new diesel engine. Almost immediately after the war, the Erie began introducing diesels all over their lines. Buffalo was one of the first locations to see the elimination of Erie steam engines, and the Erie completely dropped the fires of their steam engines in 1954. So where does all of this leave John Prophet? I've said this many times, John really disliked diesel engines, but most of all, he hated how they were replacing the steam engine. By the time John purchased his wire recorder in 1948, the Erie Railroad stopped running steam through Buffalo. They used the Lehigh Valley Depot as their passenger station, and as we heard in a previous episode of Living With Steam, the Lehigh, like the Erie, began to dieselize their fleet relatively early. With no steam running out of the Lehigh Valley Depot for either of those two railroads, John certainly wasn't going to make any recordings there. But the Erie was still running steam engines, just not in Buffalo. If he wanted to record an Erie train pulled by a steam engine, John would have to travel to the eastern areas of New York, specifically in locations that bordered the state of New Jersey, where the Erie still had a huge presence. On August 21st of 1951, for reasons he never mentioned, John found himself traveling to Port Jervis, New York. 
Port Jervis has a long history associated with the transportation industry. Located at the mouth of the Neversink River and on the banks of the Delaware River, it's also minutes away from the borders of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Like Buffalo, location was a good thing for Port Jervis as it became a stop for the Delaware and Hudson Canal, one of the nation's first million-dollar private ventures. Construction of the canal began in 1825, and its primary purpose was to serve the mining and transporting of anthracite coal to New York City and the New England states. And while the canal did indeed prove to be incredibly successful, it wasn't long before the railroad industry took over as the source for moving coal, manufactured goods, and people in and out of the Port Jervis area. And when I said railroad industry, I'm referring to the New York and Lake Erie Railroad, or as it would soon be called, the Erie, which began operation in 1847. The mainline trains of the Erie all stopped in Port Jervis. Its engines were serviced there as well. The town served as a division center between Jersey City, New Jersey and Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. By the early 1920s, 20 passenger trains stopped in Port Jervis on a daily basis. It was determined that also during this period, at least 2,500 employees of the Erie Railroad called Port Jervis their home, not unlike how employees of the Pennsylvania Railroad made Renova, Pennsylvania their hometown. So it's no surprise that the Erie Railroad made sure they had a passenger station large enough to accommodate the number of trains that came and went on a regular schedule. Out of all the facilities the Erie Railroad built in Port Jervis, the only one that still survives to this day is the Erie's third passenger station. Built in 1891 by the firm Grattan and Jennings of Buffalo, New York, and opened to the public in February of 1892. By the time John Prophet arrived in Port Jervis in 1951, the Erie Railroad, its depot, and the town of Port Jervis had seen drastic reductions of passenger traffic, and steam engines, although still running, were slowly being phased out. It was rather moderate for August in Port Jervis on this particular Wednesday in 1951. It was 71 degrees when John arrived, and for this he was grateful, because it was 57 degrees when he left Buffalo. John didn't like the cold. It's at this point, before we listen to the recording, that we have to put on our speculation hats and try to step into John's shoes to figure out the single recording he made in Port Jervis. His notes for the recording say that he caught Erie engine 3382, a 284 Berkshire-type engine, as it was pulling a freight heading east. Certainly, there were more trains that ran through the town on this day. Why he made this one and only recording of an Erie train in Port Jervis is unknown. The logical reason is that perhaps this was the only train pulled by a steam engine that he was able to record within the amount of time he had in Port Jervis. What I find very curious about the recording is that during the first 20 seconds or so, there is a loud hammering or pounding sound heard in the background. In fact, this hammering is heard at pretty much the same time the Erie train and its steam engine at the head end begins its approach. If he were back in Buffalo making a recording and the sound of a train fading away was rudely interrupted by an airplane flying overhead, John would sigh in disgust 
and abruptly stopped the wire recorder. And knowing John as well as I did, there was no way in hell he would allow this type of audible intrusion to ruin his recording, especially the sound of blatant hammering. I've heard many of his recordings where you can hear folks talking in the background and then they suddenly stop and you can faintly hear a voice or two say, oh, oh, sorry, John, sorry, John, meaning he probably gave those people a look that would melt steel. Yet, he never stopped recording the approaching Erie train in Port Jervis. Why? Was the hammering coming from somewhere near the station, but not close enough where John could tell the source of the noise to stop for a minute or two? You can bet that if someone at the station was using a hammer, John would have certainly told them to hold up until the train went past. Another thought is that the engine pulling this particular train had some special significance and John was only going to get one shot at making a recording. If someone was using a hammer, he would have no choice but to let the recording continue because if he stopped, he'd not get another chance to capture this engine. Or perhaps the noise was indeed coming from a location near the depot and John would have no way to put a stop to it. Therefore, he'd have no choice but to put up with it. There was a junkyard located directly across the street from the Erie passenger station, Trovey and Sons. Perhaps they were working on scrap metal or dismantling an old car. Another possibility is the setting up or tearing down of the annual summer carnival that took place at the same time in August that John was visiting. The carnival was held in what is now called Riverside Park, which itself was located directly across the street from the passenger station and directly next door to the Trovey and Sons junkyard. I'll never know the true source of the hammering that takes place at the beginning of this recording. Regardless, it's an incredible opportunity to hear an eerie steam engine hard at work pulling a freight train through an area that was once a major port of call for the Erie Railroad.
John got back in his car and left Port Jervis behind. He was now heading north. After a two-hour drive, he found himself in Saratoga Springs, New York, a town located in the southeast portion of the state, about 35 miles north of Albany. It was now August 24, 1951. The Delaware and Hudson Railroad had a very active presence in Saratoga Springs since the town was a stop on their Adirondack division. But before there was a railroad, the DNH had its origins in the form of a canal, the Delaware and Hudson Canal, which was built to bring merchandise, passengers, and most importantly, coal between the Delaware River and the Hudson River. And like Port Jervis, Saratoga Springs benefited greatly from the Delaware and Hudson Canal. The DNH Canal officially opened in October of 1828 and proved to be an immediate success. But canals don't do well in the winter months, especially since most of them were only four to six feet deep and almost always froze over completely, which is perfect for ice skating or hiding bodies, as was often discovered of the Erie Canal in Buffalo. But that's another story. Canals usually shut down completely until the spring. It was usually impossible to get a canal right to the doorstep of a coal mine. So even though ground broke for the creation of the DNH Canal in July of 1825, the canal company built what was called the Delaware and Hudson Gravity Railroad in April of 1826 to bring coal from the mines in Carbondale, New York to the DNH Canal in Honesdale, New York. On August 8, 1829, the DNH's first locomotive, the Sturbridge Lion made history as the first locomotive to run on rails in the United States. It didn't take long for the DNH Canal Company to realize that the future of transportation lay with railroads and not canals, which was becoming a fairly common ideology across many states that were depending solely on canals for transportation. Now let's take this story off track a bit, pun absolutely intended, and explain a bit more. The steam engine, and by this I mean a steam-powered locomotive used for pulling or pushing something, and not a stationary engine. It had been around since 1802, we have the British to thank for that. England had dominated the development and use of the steam engine beginning in 1712, when at that time, steam engines were used to power pumps to remove water from British coal mines. Regardless of what its use, for the first 10 years of its existence, the steam-powered engine was strictly a British invention. But American engineers and inventors were beginning to compete with their British counterparts and started unveiling their own designs beginning in 1812. The first fully American-built steam-powered locomotive emerged in 1825, the same year New York's Great Erie Canal officially opened. Now interesting of note, even though the DNH's Sturbridge Lion was the first steam-powered locomotive to run on rails in the United States, it was still imported from England. By the time the DNH wanted a railroad to move coal to their canal, there were no fully functioning American-made steam engines yet. Even the Sturbridge Lion was proving to be difficult to handle simply for the fact that British-made steam engines were ridiculously heavy far heavier than what the thin and often uneven American railroad tracks were capable of handling. The Lion probably spent more time on the ground than it did riding on the crude rails it was intended to be on. Proving to be more trouble than it was worth as a steam-powered locomotive, 
the Lion was relegated to function as a stationary engine after a time. With the popularity of railroads started to take over in New York by the late 1820s and into the 1830s, the D&H Canal Company began buying up or leasing several short-line railroads that were dotting eastern New York State. The New York Central System was formed by doing pretty much the same thing, buying up all the short lines that dotted the central regions of the state and pretty much ran parallel to the Erie Canal. Now imagine what a slap in the face that was to canal owners. During the winter months when the canal was frozen solid, or in some locations, drained, the early railroads kept running, moving passengers and merchandise across the state. But don't think that railroads had free reign over a canal's misfortune. Heavy tariffs were imposed on the early railroads if they wanted to operate within sight of a canal and take some of the profits away from one. By controlling many short lines, the DNH was creating one large rail system that eventually ran into upstate New York, the Adirondack region, which by the end of the 19th century was becoming a major tourist destination. The DNH Canal was last used in November of 1891, and the original Gravity Railroad closed in April of 1899. The company was now known as the Delaware and Hudson Company. There is so much more to the story of the Delaware and Hudson than what could possibly be conveyed in the time we have here, so I encourage you to head over to Google and search for Delaware and Hudson Railroad or Delaware and Hudson Gravity Railroad. There are hundreds of web pages on the history of the DNH that are sure to keep you occupied for hours. We just heard a recording John made of Delaware and Hudson engine number 304, another 484 Northern type engine, 
as it went through Ballston Spa in New York on August 24, 1951. This would be the last stop John would make on this trip before arriving at Saratoga Springs, which was his ultimate destination on this day. Interesting note about this recording, John said it was lousy. His notes indicate that he pulled over near the DNH tracks just in time to see a headlight way in the distance. But as the train got closer, John said it was drifting, no whistle, no good. The term drifting refers to when the fireman in the cab of the engine introduces a blast of air into the engine's smoke box to increase the draft of the fire. Basically, he's stimulating the fire and sending smoke out of the stack of the engine. To someone trying to record a working steam engine, it sounds like nothing other than an extremely loud blast of air or steam as the engine goes by. John Prophet knew that steam engines weren't going to be running on Eastern Railroads for too much longer. As we heard earlier, his only recording of an Erie steam engine in Port Jervis, New York, was followed shortly by the Erie dropping all their steam engines in favor of diesels. The Delaware and Hudson would soon follow in 1953, scrapping all but two of their fleet of steam engines. But on August 24, 1951, John arrived in Saratoga Springs and set up his wire recorder just south of the city to record several DNH trains, including the famous passenger train, the Laurentian. Each train he captured had a DNH steam engine at the head end. The first train John recorded was the northbound Laurentian, train number 35, pulled by DNH engine number 314, a K class 484. The train was making its run from New York City, Albany, and ultimately to its final destination, Montreal. John captured the train as it was making its final approach before eventually stopping at the Saratoga Springs Depot. The recording begins with the sound of bells from a series of crossing gates signaling that the gates are going down for an approaching train. The DNH passenger depot was located right in the middle of downtown Saratoga Springs in 1951. The depot itself was on Railroad Place, between Division and Church Streets, and the railroad right-of-way almost divided the city in half. By 1956, the station would be moved out of the city along with the railroad tracks that serviced it. The arrival of the Laurentian, or any train for that matter, was still an event that people in downtown Saratoga Springs took notice of. By the 1950s, it was unusual for an active rail line to run at grade through the center of town. The Laurentian was scheduled to arrive about 1.45 in the afternoon with only a scheduled stop of two to three minutes. While John Prophet was certainly unique in how he captured the hundreds of recordings he made of the various railroads in western New York and now in downstate New York, he certainly wasn't the only rail fan with the ways and means to do the same. J.J. Young was also a lover of trains. Like John Prophet, he was obsessed with them. J.J. was from Goosetown, West Virginia, and he made it a habit to get in and around any trains that went in and out of town so he could take their pictures, even at a very young age. It was easy for him to do so since Goosetown was a haven of traffic for the Baltimore and Ohio and Pennsylvania railroads from the 1930s through the 1950s. A great story about J.J. Young and his love of trains comes from the Archiving Wheeling website, and you'll be able to find the link to this site and more information about J.J. on the Living With Steam Facebook page. 
Many years ago, on a Thanksgiving day just before her country was drawn into the Second Global War, a mother in Goosetown, West Virginia, sent her son to the store for salt. Finding the store closed for another hour, the boy, as he was wont to do, wandered over to the Pennsylvania Railroad passenger station near the Wheeling Wharf. The crew of a Pittsburgh-bound locomotive recognized the boy and offered him a ride. Never one to refuse a ride on a locomotive, the boy climbed aboard. Later, at the B&O station in Pittsburgh, while waiting for a train back to Wheeling, the boy was recognized by another crew and offered another ride, and so on. That evening, a worried mother back in Goosetown received a telephone call from Buffalo, New York, advising her to send someone else for the Thanksgiving salt. That boy's name was John J.J. Young, and he loved trains. A lot. Even after that, Young recalled, whenever I left the house, my mother always told me, send me a postcard when you get there. J.J. was born in 1929 and always had a front seat to the activities of trains in his neighborhood. Steam engines pulled trains right by the front window of his house. And by the time he was seven years old, he was recognized by many of the crew of the railroads and was often allowed to ride in the cabs of many engines. He started taking pictures of trains when he was five years old. He became fluent in developing techniques since taking the picture is only the first step. His railroad pictures are often considered some of the finest ever taken. And like John Prophet, he began recording the last years of steam of many railroads in the East just after World War II. J.J. used both wire and open-reel magnetic tape. J.J. Young passed away in 2004, and his audio collection wound up in the hands of Jay Wynn, an avid collector of railroad recordings and the producer of railroad sound CDs. It's through Jay and J.J. Young that we now return to John Prophet and the recording of train number 34, the northbound Laurentian. John only recorded the train as it passed his location, which was just south of the Ballston Yard in Saratoga Springs. But J.J. Young also visited Saratoga Springs, and in 1952, he set up his recording equipment right on the passenger platform of the D&H Depot. He captured the Laurentian just as it arrived at the depot. It stopped for two to three minutes to let any passengers on or off the train, and then it slowly pulled away, continuing its journey north. On yet another visit to Saratoga Springs, JJ was able to record the DNH Laurentian from inside the baggage car, which was right behind the tender of the engine. So I've assembled all three recordings into one incredible sequence. First is John's recording of the Laurentian on the outskirts of town. Next is JJ's recording of the train arriving at the Saratoga Springs DNH Depot and then we'll hop on board the Laurentian to ride with JJ out of town.
After recording the northbound Laurentian, John almost immediately captured a DNH freight train pulling out of the yard on Ballston Avenue. The train will make a long approach to John's location, and once again, you'll hear the sound of the crossing gate near to where John is standing. Soon, another DNH K-Class engine, this time number 311, runs through, pulling the freight train. After the freight train heads south, John had some time to kill before train number 34, the southbound Laurentian, was due. According to the 1951 DNH timetable, the train was scheduled to depart Saratoga Springs a little before 3 o'clock p.m. John started recording train 34 just as soon as he could barely make out the fact that the train was on the move and heading towards his location. It makes a long approach to where John is standing with his wire recorder. And like train 35 earlier, you'll catch the sound of the engine approaching with the train and passing John's vantage point at an incredible clip.
John's trip to Saratoga Springs wasn't finished yet. A few minutes after the southbound Laurentian passed by, John caught the sound of yet another train slowly starting to pull out of the freight yard on Ballston Avenue. John wrote in his notes that this was a milk train pulling out of the yard and heading south. The train was pulled by engine 651, a 462 P1 class engine. The bells for the crossing gate where John was situated will announce the lowering of the gates and the train appears shortly after.
You've been listening to Living with Steam, featuring the sounds of trains and railroad operations in the Buffalo and Western New York area. This program was written and produced by me, Aaron Heverin, and all of the original sound recordings were made in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. A very special thanks to Jay Wynn for the use of the two recordings of J.J. Young we heard in this episode. To find out more about the spectacular railroad recordings Jay offers, visit his website at VintageRailroadAudio.com. Once again, that's VintageRailroadAudio.com. Finally, a special thanks to Robert Urich, who runs the PortJervisNY.com website. It was because of Robert's help that I was able to retrace the possible steps John Prophet took while he visited Port Jervis in 1951. For additional information, including photographs, maps, and other historical content relevant to this episode, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash living with steam, all one word. You'll also find links to many of the websites that contained historical information needed for this episode. Be sure to check them out. And while you're on our Facebook page, please take a moment to ask any questions you may have or even make a comment about the show. I'd certainly appreciate your feedback. If you enjoy listening to Living With Steam, please rate the program on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Music